Welcome to Veritas, guys. Uh, my name's Ryan. I get to help lead the college ministry here, and I am excited to preach the Bible today. And even after all the cuteness and joy, a beautiful day outside, uh, kind of at risk of being a bit of a Debbie Downer right off the gun, let me ask you this question. Does anyone here know what hopelessness feels like? Does anyone here know what hopelessness feels like? Of course we do. Days when it feels like nothing's going right, there's nothing to look forward to, the good guys keep losing, there's a new bummer around every corner, especially in a world that can sometimes feel like it's spinning out of our control. We don't know which way is up. We are prone to feel hopelessness, absolutely. And it can sound like a lot of things, right? It can sound on one end all the way down to like a, I feel hopeless that my favorite team will never change or never win. Nobody here has ever felt that. But down the line, in a more serious note, it's, I don't know if I can handle losing another person close to me. I don't know if I can go to one more funeral. We all know what hopelessness feels like, right? Maybe we're there today. Okay, maybe that's the descriptive word over your life as you're walking into church this morning, but that's also why you're here, right? That's why we're all here, to keep hope alive. That's why we come to church, right? To keep hope alive. So if you're extra hungry for hope this morning, if you just want to feast on some hope, walk out of your I want to maybe give a little bit of a disclaimer to that, okay? After seeing our text today, you might think that you've come to the wrong place for hope. <laughs> that might be what you see at first, right? At first glance, Genesis 5 and 6 can seem a little bit doom and gloom, okay? A little bit depressing, pretty hopeless stuff, but take heart. It's okay. After a closer look, we're going to see breadcrumbs laid across the path. We're going to see breadcrumbs of hope, I'll call them, that are leading us towards something pretty fantastic. As we pick up these breadcrumbs, this is the conclusion that we're going to come to in the end of our text today. Our big idea is this, that hopelessness is never an option for God's people. Hopelessness is never an option for God's people, Okay. So we're going to go for it. Let's read just a few verses out of Genesis 5. The verses will be on the screen, or you can turn there with me. Verses 1 through 4 of Genesis 5 say this. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years. Then he died. Then he died. Okay. Genesis 5. One of those chapters that you love to skip over in your Bible reading plans, right? Everybody can relate with that one. Why? Well, it's a genealogy, okay? It's a list of names. If you keep reading, it's a list of names. Half of them you can't pronounce. Most of them you don't even uh, know why they're there. They don't mean much to you. But also what makes this one hard is this genealogy can be particularly depressing, we'll say. Okay, verse four ended with, he died. And if you keep reading, 
you will see time and time again, over and over and over again on repeat, then he died, then he died, then he died. One commentator, I think, just hit it right on the head and said, reading Genesis 5 is like walking through a cemetery. That's what it can kind of feel like. Lots of death everywhere you look. So I guess, why is it here? Why is it here and why aren't we skipping over it this morning like I do in my reading plans? Well, I think as we walk through the cemetery, if we're brave enough to go into there, I think we're going to see something incredibly important today. Right, a few chapters ago, do you remember as the serpent came to Eve to tempt her to sin? Do you remember what he said as, as there was this, this fruit on the forbidden tree that God said, don't eat it. He was trying to, and what did he say to her? What were his words? He said in Genesis 3, 4, when you eat of that, Eve, you will not surely die. That's what he said. And we know that was in complete contrast, total opposite of what God said. God said, you will certainly die. So fast forward a few chapters. We're walking through the cemetery. Who was right? God's words or Satan's words? It's a gloomy reminder for sure, but there's still an overarching truth here that we cannot miss, that we do very, very well to see today. And it's this, that when God says something, it happens. When God says something has happened, God's words were true and they are always going to be true. And I think we can find a lot of hope in this, even as we kind of walk through the cemetery. How do we find hope in that? Well, Yes, God was right when he said that death was a consequence of sin. That's what we see for sure. But that's not all he said, was it? That's not the only promise he made. He said more. He promised in Genesis 3.15 that there would be a champion born to man that would end death forever. That there would be a Messiah, a savior coming, that people would die, absolutely. But people would also be born. What a great reminder we had of that today. People would be born. Death would be true but death would never actually have the ultimate say anymore. A serpent crusher would be born. And so Genesis 5 carries on the hope, generation after generation, anticipating this hero as death, like clockwork, is reminding us of the curse over and over again. Life is never far behind, reminding us of God's promise. And so even in the cemetery, don't miss the little breadcrumb of hope laid here for you that God always keeps his word. Breadcrumb of hope, number one, God always keeps his word. Why does that matter today? Like, why should you care that God keeps his word? I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that they've been to too few of funerals. Right, the word of death haunts us in this life. It's unpredictable, but it's inevitable. But God tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that his people do not mourn as if they had no hope. Like even in the midst of death, we are called to be different. God's words give us hope of life in the presence of death. And now we get to practice now. What do I mean by that? What do I mean that we need to practice this hope now? I mean, the way I see it, your hope is only as strong as kind of the object that you tie it to, okay? Okay. Like your hope is only as good as the object of hope. If you tie your hope to something that doesn't give you life, but is actually headed towards death, it'll lead you to helplessness, to hopelessness, I should say. 
Like, can you actually trust the things that you are putting your hope in in life? To put it another way, do the things that you hope in in life actually pass the death test? Here's some pretty easy, low-hanging examples, okay? Do you think it might be possible that maybe you put too much hope in your own health? Have you ever thought that before? Like, I think it's possible a lot of us get more agitated on a day where we miss, like, the gym than miss time with the Lord praying and reading our Bibles, right? Like, it throws us off more to miss the gym than time with Jesus. Like, I think it's possible we spend more money, especially in our culture, we spend so much money just trying to stay young, trying to preserve our health, or at least trying to preserve, like, the appearance of being young. And health is a great gift. Don't hear me not say that. It is something to be stewarded for sure, but it can never be our ultimate thing. It can never be what we make our life all about, our ultimate hope. Why? Because Genesis 5 says, pretty bluntly, we have an expiration date. Like we are living under a curse still today. We expire, but here's a great test. Like how do you react when health gets uncertain? Like when you have the big appointment and the big test and stuff kind of gets a little shaky, like how do you react? Is your world completely rocked? As if you didn't see this coming ever. And you've been pretending like it would never happen. Does it rock you in an unhealthy way? Bottom line is that health is a terrible promise keeper, I think, guys. And we should not put too much hope in our health. Okay, let me ask you this. Do you think it's possible you put too much hope in other people. Maybe we put too much hope in other people in this life. Like, like, is your world rocked when people let you down or like a relationship fails? Short of a few of you being like high school sweethearts and getting married, like nobody's immune from heartbreak in this room, right? And even you, like the high school sweethearts who are living happily ever after, even you, you know the people you love the most, who you trust with your life, will continue to disappoint you. Like no perfect spouse, no best friend, no pastor on a stage can ever keep their word perfectly. We cannot treat people like they passed the death test either in this life. And so what can we do? Well, on a brighter note, we can try reading the Bible. This is a good one. This is some fresh air here. We can try reading the Bible. Why? Because God wrote a book full of his words that we can trust. A book full of his words that we can bank our entire life on. He wrote a book with all of his wisdom poured into there. All the encouragement that we want. All the hope that we could ever handle. It's like a feast being set out for us every single day. Where you want some hope, you go to the word. And you don't stop until you find hope. And if you're new to church and the Jesus stuff, I would say dive in today. Like go straight home and open up this book. Go to the Psalms. Look at people who are writing in, in the Bible, God-inspired people who feel like you feel, who feel hopelessness. Like Psalm 42, like the psalmist is just pleading with himself, like, why am I so down? Like, why am I so hopeless today? Ah, I need to trust God. I will worship him again. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades. Like everywhere I look is death, but the word of our God remains forever. It's so encouraging because we kind of made it through the cemetery. We're kind of coming up to the land of the living now, but be warned, it might actually get worse before it gets better, okay? It might get a little bit worse 
And I just want to read, with no more disclaimers, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 7, say this. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky for I regret that I have made them. Pretty easy to understand, pretty lighthearted reading. What in the world did we just read? Okay, sons of God taken on wives, Nephilim, God regretting mankind. This is easy. God keeps his word. That's what we've said so far, which means that people will keep on being born. But let me ask, after you read that, did that plan backfire? Was that actually a good idea? All we have here is more people, which means more sin, which means more problems, and we're seeing more Genesis 3 language. Where it describes Eve, before she took the fruit, she looked. She saw that that temptation was good to the eyes, and she took it. She looked, she saw, she took, and here we have these sons of God looking, seeing that these women were beautiful for them, and taking them, whoever they pleased. Who were these sons of God? Fun topic, okay? The Old Testament, when it's ever talking about these sons of God, is usually, if not always, talking about angels, right? Angelic beings. In this case, evil fallen angels, demons, taking wives for themselves. Sons of God is in contrast here, as you see, with daughters of men. And it could be that they are fallen angels, it also could be that these sons of God are just the more godly line of, Cain, of, sorry, of Seth, right? In contrast to the wicked line of Cain, these men who are godly are marrying ungodly women. And because of that, they're being led away from their God, baited into worship and living for false gods. Could be a couple other things. Those are kind of the two main ideas that people think. Either way, like, Don't go ruin your connection group arguing about that because either way, the point is the same. Wickedness and sin are running rampant in the story and it's only getting worse. And nobody's immune from it. Even these Nephilim, which not gonna touch too much on that either, these great men of renown, not even them were able to resist the wickedness, the vacuum that's being swept up in the story. So the question is, how could God respond? How would God respond to such a hopeless time on earth? Well, it says, he will limit humans' years to 120. He regrets creating mankind. And he has actually decided to wipe his creation off the face of the earth. Man. Like, how do we find hope in that? (laughs) Doesn't God regretting 
contradict every single thing we've said so far. Like we just said, God keeps his word. Yes, bank your life on that. God regrets. You're like, wait, is God faithful? Is he sovereign? If he regrets his decisions, how can I ever be sure of any of his words? How can I be sure that he will love me tomorrow? No, the point of these verses is not to confuse you actually, but it's actually to reassure you that God never changes. What do I mean by that? Again, Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, God does something about it. He cast mankind out so that they would not remain in their cursed state forever, that he would begin this process of redemption. There will never be a wickedness or an injustice or a sin in this world that misses the eyes of this judge. So we see here, is God just following through with what he always said would happen. Sin is going down. And for God to regret or repent, as maybe some of your versions say, most importantly, it's a change of action here. God, up to this point in the story, is creator, breathing life into the world and now on the scene as a destroyer, wiping humanity out. But it's not God saying, I didn't see this coming. Shoot, I'm so surprised. I'm so caught off guard by this. I didn't see this coming. No, it's not that. And it's not God saying, like, it's not God being like overwhelmed or overcome or controlled by his emotions. Like he's throwing a temper tantrum. He's just really, really mad. And so therefore he's gonna do this thing on a whim, not at all. It's not him being any less loving or any less himself. It's actually God giving the right response to sin. I saw an article this week, think of it like this. I saw an article this week. It was all about somebody's greatest regret in life. Like their greatest regret. And this person who was writing the article, his greatest regret in his entire life was crossbreeding Labradors and Poodles, creating a Labradoodle. And I, if you have a Labradoodle, I am sorry, I'm not casting a judgment. I'm just talking about an article that somebody wrote, okay? I don't care about Labradoodles, but I guess they're pretty bad dogs. This person's greatest regret in his life was that he created the Labradoodle. In other words, if he could go back in time and not do that again, he would. That's not what God is like. I've heard somebody describe it more like this, where this is like a good loving father disciplining and spanking his son, who I know exactly what I'm doing, I am in control of the situation and I know the benefits and the good that are coming. I see the big picture here, but it's not like any good father in the moment of spanking their son enjoys that. No, you feel it. The original language would kind of say like, it's like a a sigh, regret. (sighs) So whether or not you want to talk about God showing emotion or anything like that, you can just read simply in verse six that God was grieved. And you can see that grief as a reminder that God's love is constant and unwavering. That's who he is. And so whether this 120 years is just wicked humanity's lifespan being limited or it's God mercifully waiting 120 years for them to repent before destruction, this is the never-changing, perfect judge who in his love is patiently keeping true to his word. Our breadcrumb of hope number two 
is that God will always punish sin. God will always punish sin. And that might sound odd, but I think it's incredibly encouraging, believe it or not, to us as well. Right? Like one of the fastest ways to kind of like ruin hope, like to kill the hope in your life is just right in your pocket. Right? Like pick up your phone and start scrolling through the news feed and start feeling every single bad thing that you read is going on in the world. Like try and take the injustice of the world on your shoulder, all that brokenness. And at least for me, it's so tempting them to forget that God is on his throne, that I actually have a God who is a good judge. And I feel like I need to do something about it. And it overwhelms me. It's easy as the world feels like it's spiraling out of control to forget that I'm not the judge, but actually there's a fair and a good judge who will always make things right. Who Romans 2 describes as patiently waiting in order to lead us to repentance. He is kind but let's take this from the kind of the theological in the clouds to the ground for just a minute. In his kindness, is God patiently waiting for you to turn back to him today? Is he calling you to do that today? Like it's always humbling to remember the same sin that I see out there or I read in here, all the stuff that's wreaking havoc in the world is the exact same sin that actually lives inside of me and is threatening me. And I'm telling you guys, that sin out there in there, it will be punished. It will not miss the eye of the judge. It will be punished if we ignore the kindness of the judge who is allowing us patiently to simply turn to him in his mercy. It's so hopeful to know that the world will be set right, that wickedness will be dealt with absolutely, but it's even more exhilarating, isn't it? To know that God can pardon me for my sin and my wickedness. How does he do that exactly? How? Well, we get a clue in our last verse today. He tells us exactly how he does it. This is our last verse today, guys. Genesis 6, verse 8. Just verse 8 says this. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Underline that word favor. Noah found favor with the Lord. In contrast with verse 5, when we saw God looks out and he sees wickedness running rampant, Noah. Noah is seen by God, born of the line of Seth, dropped onto the scene like a shot of hope into our veins this morning. Noah, the name, means relief, right? Like he will bring us relief. And God plans to bring consolation to a broken world through this one man and his family. One righteous man who walked with the Lord to be saved from coming destruction. But let me ask, how in the world is that hopeful? Like one righteous man versus an entire world of wickedness. I don't like his chances, you know? Why does that matter? Here's why it's hopeful. Through Noah, God is keeping his word. And God is keeping hope alive. He's keeping hope alive. Hope that death would not have the final say when a savior is born on earth. God is saving one human line and pointing us all the way down that line to Jesus. And it's in Jesus we see God keep his word perfectly to bring an end to sin and death. It's in Jesus, not destroying the world with the flood, but himself hanging on a cross and being destroyed, offering us relief from our hopelessness and to live forever with him. And it's in the one righteous man stepping into this fallen, broken world that we pick up this final breadcrumb that's been there the whole time, that God is in control. God is always in control. And if you want hope today, 
you need to see that the place you need to go is the cross of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. That we don't put our hope in anything else in this world. We put our hope in Jesus Christ because at the cross, you see God show his plan. His cards were on the table. It became clear as day, the mystery hidden for ages, his complete sovereign control over evil on display. You see God taking the punishment of sin upon himself in death. And you see God finally crushed the head of the serpent as he walked out of his own grave. Guys, if there was ever a time for God to change his mind, wouldn't it have been the cross? But he didn't. And those of us who have his favor will have forever to thank him. So how does the cross give us that hope? How do we get in on this favor that Noah had? That's what I wanna know. But as we'll continue on in the next couple of weeks, the story of Noah, you'll see that he's just normal like us. Like he's, he's pretty messed up. He does some weird things. He's a sinner just like me. And yet he's described here as someone who has found favor with God. The word favor, you know it. it means grace. Grace, a free gift. Gift of what? Well, it's a gift of hope. Hope beyond anything you could ever imagine. Hope that all the wrong you've done, all the sin in your heart that has defined your life up to this point, it does not have to define you anymore. Hope that God the judge would look at you and not see the curse of sin and all the wrong that you've done, but he would look at you and see the perfect righteousness of his son. What does it mean that this gift is free? That this favor is free? It means that it can be yours this morning. It can be yours right now. No more working to get your act together. No more cleaning up before coming to God. No more trying to impress him. Just the open hands of a desperate sinner who is so hungry for hope. So hungry for hope and needs the Lord's favor. And this morning, guys, we've been led to the valley of the shadow of death. We've walked through the cemetery. We've been picking up these breadcrumbs of hope. We finally come to the conclusion that hopelessness is never an option for God's people. Why? Because Jesus is our hope. And he's alive and he's here with us today. So let's pray to him right now. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your words. Thank you for... Thank you for not leaving us where we're at and acting rashly. But thank you for your patience, meeting us where we're at and offering hope, giving us a way out of the sin and the death that traps us, that defines our lives, God, and providing a way out a way out with you, Lord. And so, God, you're alive. You are living hope and you are here this morning. And so to any of us who are feeling that sense of hopelessness, we don't know what to look forward to right now. We don't know what we're gonna do for the sake. We don't know if things are getting better. God, would you just meet all those people where they're at? And would you lift our eyes to the cross? Would we see an empty tomb this morning and would we be a rejoicing people? We love you, Lord. Thank you.